let's take our Bibles, or if you have something to open up the Bible in, to 1 Corinthians 16, let all you do be done in love, 1 Corinthians 16. As we've been doing, we're going to read the passage together. We're going to read the first 14 verses, and we'll come back and break it down. And if you are physically able to stand, we'd encourage you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 16, we're picking it up in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Uh, Seven. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. I was reflecting back to uh, a time when I first became a Christian. I was sitting in a little old sanctuary, I think it was from the uh, early 1900s, and uh, we used to sing out of the hymnal, and we would sing, Great is your faithfulness, O God my Father. Uh, It was for me like going into another world. I'd come from a rock and roll background. I was was a guy who was into sports and music, and then I came into this little Christian church, and they opened up this hymnal, and they would sing songs to God, and Uh, It was such a different experience for me, uh, but it was so cool because I could sense the Lord, I could sense the Lord's presence in that room. And I think, you know, I was reflecting on the front row and thinking, what what has God been trying to do in my life for the last three decades as a Christian? And I think it's probably captured in this. He's been trying to show me his love and teach me how to love. And the two biggest things that get in the way of that endeavor, see if this, you can relate to this, is my pride and my flesh. (laughs) See, if I could say that everything I did in a given day or a given week I had done in love, my life would be probably a lot different than it is on most weeks. And the Bible says right here, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, And just read it with me so that we make sure we've got it. 
And you may remember, for those of you who are with us at the beginning of the book, this was the theme of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, right? We had a little graphic up here. I know that was five years ago, so it's, it's hard for you guys to remember. That's when we started the book, right? But we called the series, Let, how much? Let all you do be done in love. All you do. Every action, every reaction should be done in love. Now, if I came to the end of every week or even every day and I asked myself, if I measured my life against 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all you do be done in love. That might help me kind of simplify the Christian life because sometimes the Christian life seems maybe more complex than we make it or than it needs to be. And here's what it is. Let all you do be done in love. That's not just the theme verse of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> That's the theme verse for the entire Christian life. Let everything you do be done in love. You know, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandments in the scriptures, what are the greatest? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. The whole Bible is about this, you guys. Our whole Christian life should be about it. But the truth of the matter is that all of us struggle. We struggle with loving the way that we should love. And what we need to know about this love that God commands is that it is a love that he gives. He doesn't ask you to do it alone. It's a love that comes to you from God. We love because he first loved us. And it's a love that moves through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. So if I'm not loving the way that I should be loving, probably what's happening is I'm not abiding in love, or I'm not staying close enough to the source of love. I can't manufacture this love. It's challenging enough with the help of God, amen, <laughs> right? And so this is, this is the, uh, I guess you could say the target for the Christian life is do everything in love kind of pondering this thought and thinking about God's nature and thinking about this is, this is, I think, theologically what we could say about God. He does everything in love. Now, we know that God is also just and he's a God of truth, but think about what he does in your life. Even if he allows pain or discipline in your life, he's working it together for good and he's doing it in love. Now, we don't always understand what God is doing not everything that he's doing, but this links the, the thought to God's nature. God is love. Now, what should this love look like? Well, it should be love for God and love for others. It should be the motivating factor in my life. At the end of uh, an incredible section on the resurrection, if you look at verse 58 of chapter 15, Paul uh, concludes, he's giving thanks to God for the incredible power of the gospel the victory of Jesus, and then he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Everything that you do for the Lord, not one thing that you do in terms of giving of your time, your talent, or your resources is ever in vain. 
Now, at the end of chapter 15, we talked about how toil is a word for work, and it means ministry work, and that's the primary meaning here, but it also includes your resources. Never is there anything that you ever give with the right motive to the kingdom of God that will ever be in vain. But I've certainly given my resources to many other things that have been in vain. <laughs> Sometimes we've made investments that have been in vain. Sometimes we spent money on something that we thought could benefit us or you know, we did this or that with our money and we look at that and that was in vain. It was empty. But Jesus said, he talked about giving and the first part of our message here is on giving. Not because I'm doing a special message on giving, but because this is where we are in the Bible. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know how little we talk about money. We don't do special messages on money. I don't turn to Malachi 3 and try to take it out of context to strong arm you into giving, right? Bring the tithe into the storehouse or you're under the curse of God. No, I'm sorry. Malachi 3 was written to the Jewish people under a theocracy. And there, are, there have been many teachers that come to the pulpit and I have to say they are manipulating their people and they're putting the law on the people of God. And you know, in the Old Testament, in, for Israel, the tithe was law to support the government and the festivals of Israel, to support the Levites, and to support the poor. If you combine the tithes in the Old Testament, they equal 23 and a third percent of your income. So if you want to go back to the law, we're happy if you guys want to do that. <laughs> That'll probably help our offerings. But that's a joke because we are not under the law. The New Testament teaches free will giving, and I'm going to develop this more as we get into this text. But this is where we are in the Bible. So if you're new to us, I'm not pulling this text out. We've actually done 15 chapters in 1 Corinthians. Yes, we have. And now we are in a portion about a collection, an offering. Why do I give? Why do I love? Well, love is to govern or control everything I do. It's to direct my actions and reactions. There are things that I'm working on, things that God is pointing out to me. And he's saying, I want my kingdom and my love to be the priority in your life, Michael. Now, when you consider giving, you need to remember that everything you have in the first place is from God anyway, and you're not taking any of it with you. So, Jesus talked about not storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but putting, treasuring up your treasures in heaven or storing them up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now, we know those verses, right? We've heard Jesus say that before, but I'm not sure that our giving is in concert with what Jesus said because we have a tendency to store up a lot more here than we're sending ahead. <laughs> and, you know, Solomon, when he was writing in Ecclesiastes, he bemoaned this fact. He built really an entire empire and then had to deal with the reality that he was going to leave it to somebody else and he didn't know what they were going to do with it. And it's true that the Bible teaches smart investing and saving and making sure that 
you put away even for your children and perhaps grandchildren, but in the end, we're not taking, it, taking any of it with us. This is one expression of love that may be the most difficult one to release. It's our resources. But I am a steward of everything I have, my time, my talent, and my treasure. Now concerning this collection, verse 1, chapter 16, the collection, it's for the saints, notice, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Notice with the word now, Bible students, we have a kind of a change in subject or an introduction to a new subject, and we're in the home stretch of 1 Corinthians. We're gonna, we have two messages left, and this is one of them. And Paul begins with a collection. And this may be an answer to a question on how to manage the collection for the saints. Now concerning the collection, maybe they had questions about it. They had written Paul a letter about other subjects, and they may have asked him about, well, how do we collect money, and what should we do with it? Where should we put it, and who should be in charge of it? And we know that there have been many a ministry that have gotten themselves in trouble with finances because there haven't been the kind of measures and accountability put around them that there should be. We come to find out that ministries that have been very visible in the world, in the secular world, in the church world, have been exposed. And you may have heard this, but recently Benny Hinn, who's kind of been the uh, poster, poster child for the Word Faith Movement, has said he's disavowing now the prosperity gospel. He came out within the last couple of weeks and said he's done with the prosperity gospel. Now, I hope that that's true. I hope that Benny Hinn is through with the prosperity gospel because he was staying in hotel rooms on ministry money that cost $10,000 a night. And he was exposed by uh, secular uh, news programs to show what he was doing. Now, I suppose that we all, you know, depending on where you're coming from financially, we could all gasp, you know, someone in the third world might gasp that you spent $200 on a hotel room, right? <gasps> so, we know how that goes. But you might want to just keep Benny Hinn in your prayers. I pray that what he has said is authentic, and he's going to stick to it. But we do know that over the years, as they've done the telethons on a certain television station, and they've raised money and made promises to people. And they've said, if you give this amount, this is what's going to come back to you. Has been dishonest. Disingenuous. In fact, I've been on the other end of those phone calls from disenfranchised believers who said, I gave and this is what they promised if I gave this amount. And we said, did it happen? And they said, no. But the person on the other end lined their pockets with your money to be sure. And I wonder even as part of that whole thing, if maybe there is some, uh, some restoring that needs to be done in practical ways, if you know what I mean. It's easy to say one thing like, I'm done with it, but what about all the damage that has been done? There's, there may be a need to make some amends, and that's something that the Lord is going to have to deal with that particular individual, but there's many, many more. Now, the collection was to be taken for the saints, and we find out from other scriptures that these were poor saints in Jerusalem. Why were they poor? Well, though Jerusalem was the capital of Israel and the epicenter for religion, and that's where the temple was, 
there were many impoverished people. It didn't mean that you were wealthy because you lived in Jerusalem. And we know that there were famines that happened, and there were Jews that got kicked out of certain locations, and a combination of things. We could say, you know, it depends on the demographics of a church. It depends on, you know, where they may be in terms of location, how many people go to that church. There could be a lot of factors. And you guys have been amazing in helping out other churches. And I'm talking about you guys as living truth. We've sent money to another church in Ensenada, for example. And we helped uh, the pastor's wife with the surgery and the daughter with a corrective eye surgery. Uh, you guys, with your funds, have built Sunday school classrooms. And you have helped uh, young girls get off, get out of prostitution and the sex slave industry and try to find a life again. That's where your resources have gone. A lot of your resources have gone. Every time we've brought a need to you guys, I've been amazed and humbled of how you have met the need over and above. It's been amazing to see what God has done. So much good has gone from this congregation, and I, I deeply appreciate that, and I know the leadership does as well. Let all you do be done in love. See, there are poor saints all over the world. There are brothers and sisters and when Paul met, for example, in Galatians 2 with Peter, James, and John and spoke about the gospel that he was preaching, they had asked him to remember the poor, something Paul said, I was eager to do anyway. This is something I wanted to do. So the churches that were being established in the Roman world in largely Gentile areas were hearing about the poor saints in Jerusalem. And here's what we, knew, we know at the time, there was a great a racial divide and even hatred between Jews and Gentiles. And we learned from the Gospel of John that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so this racial divide um, that was occurring, uh, people kind of wondering about, you know, can that person belong to the kingdom of God? There was a lot of suspicion and a lot of hatred. And this offering from Gentile churches taken to the poor saints in Jerusalem would be an expression that those walls were coming down. I was reading a commentary this week, and this pastor was talking about ministry to the poor, and Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. And I, I know sometimes when we're pulling out of shopping centers and we see a person with a sign, we, we sometimes hear that that person's making $500 a day with their sign. So who is genuinely poor, and how do we ferret that out? And we have an amazing benevolence ministry here. The second Sunday of every month, uh, some of you give extra to the benevolence ministry and the elders use that money to minister to families. And we've been able to help people pay rent and pay light bills and put food on the table and buy their children or grandchildren going back to school, shoes and clothes. Uh, there's been an amazing amount of good done. But it's one thing to give money, said this writer, it's another thing to get to know a poor person and enter into their pain and get to know their heart. It's another thing to go into the trenches with someone and say to them, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to help bear this burden. It kind of changes the dynamic of how we think about the poor because it's one thing to write a check or say, you know, I'll give a little extra to benevolence or, oh, there's a need in Mexico. Okay, I'll give an extra bit of my money, but for those folks who have gone down there, or if you've been in a third world situation, like I was in India and Nepal, and I was blown away 
by the joy on the face of believers in those areas. They had more joy and more happiness in Christ than I did as an American. It was sad, and they had nothing. They wouldn't even let me carry my own suitcase. That's the respect and uh, grace that they treated me with. It was amazing. And it was humbling at the same time. And it makes me think about just kind of how I think about my life as an American and what I really think I need, how I compare my life to that which I probably shouldn't be comparing it to. In Romans 15, Paul develops this need. This is just one book back. Go to Romans 15 for a second. Romans 15, we're going to pick it up at verse 26. Paul's talking about this gift, and he talks about it in a couple of different places. And here's what he says, Romans 15, 26. He says, For Macedonia and Achaia, where Corinth was located, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 1527 of Romans. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, Gentiles to the Jews, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, we are grafted in, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Paul uses theology here to prove the point. Therefore, he says, when I have finished this and put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ who said it is more blessed to... It is more blessed to give than to receive. Man, that sounds good until you try it. <laughs> but, but I think it's true because we've, I know it's true, Jesus said it, but, but when you've given, have you ever uh, decided, okay, I, I'm, and you took a gulp and you looked at your finances and you decided, you know what, uh, this need has come our way, and, and I'm just going to give to it, Lord. All right, all right. <laughs> I'm going to give to it, Lord. Pulling back and forth, and then you just release it. There's a blessing with that. You ever experienced that blessing? When you just met somebody else's need. The generous man, Proverbs 11.25, ESV, whoever brings a blessing will be prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. He who refreshes others, Proverbs 11.25 in the NIV, will himself be refreshed. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Jesus talked about the joy of giving. Giving is probably one of the greatest expressions of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, when we love somebody, we want to give them stuff. We want to give them our time. We want to give them gifts. We want to be with them and spend time with them. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. There are so many needs in our world, so many hurting people. 
We have a, uh, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 16, we have a little church plant that started in Topeka, Kansas called Living Truth Church, Christian Church. And it's being pastored by a great man who was our worship leader many, many years ago, Eric Patterson, Eric and Melissa. And I, I don't want to steal their blessing, but I think this will bless you. They're a little church, probably under 50 people. And periodically, they send us a check. They give to our ministry. And they say, they said something like this. Eric wrote a note, Pastor Eric. He wrote a note and he said, we want to sow back into the ministry that's helped us. And they have taken our doctrinal statement and taken the kind of the philosophy of living truth and put it there in Topeka, Kansas. And they're a little tiny church who sends a check to us. That, to me, is amazing. And it speaks volumes about their heart. And so notice verse 2, 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, this is the day of worship, the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save or store up as he may prosper, Paul directing on the collection, that no collections be made when I come. Now, on the first day of every week, would be Sunday, and Paul may not have used Sunday because Sunday is actually a heathen name. You may not know that, but the days of the week come from heathen gods or heathen worship. Much of this comes from there, and there was a sun god, and so you had Sunday, and sometimes you look at words and you go, oh, that makes sense, right? And so the first day of the week was the day of worship for the Christian church. That's why we're here this morning is Saturday worship that was dominant in Judaism called the Shabbat that actually began on Friday at sundown till Saturday at sundown. And obviously, Christian Jews still may honor Shabbat. They may slow everything down, not from a legalistic standpoint. Some of you even, you know, you're a non-Jew, but you like the concept of the Sabbath. Not that it's law, but slowing everything down on Friday night until Saturday night, it ain't a bad idea. Can I get a witness? But the, the day of worship in the early church shifted from Shabbat, from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, to Sunday morning in honor of the resurrection and even the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so the early church would meet on a Sunday, the first day of every week. We get a little insight in, in here to the historical early worship of the church, the first day of every week. And they took a collection. And notice it's the first day of the week, and it is each one of you. So it is a regular collecting of offerings, and each one is involved. It is each one of you. It is universal. Now, sometimes when we come into the church, we feel like, man, I don't have much to give, right? You may be hurting financially. You may be in a tough spot, uh, you know, whatever it may be. But remember the widow who gave, what, two mites? And remember, Jesus was watching her. And what she gave was inconsequential in terms of a dollar amount. It might be like, you know, the offering bag coming by and somebody throwing a quarter in it. The, the amount may be inconsequential to us, but to Jesus, it meant everything. In fact, he said, she, the poor widow, has outgiven everybody here. Because your giving has to do with what you have. 
And, of course, we do know that giving should cost us something. It should have some element of sacrifice. But God also says that he loves what? A cheerful giver. If the bag comes by and you are cranky instead of cheerful, okay, here it comes again. Not going to be able to go to In-N-Out later. Keep it. Because you're not going to get any credit in heaven anyway. <laughs> if you put it into the bag that way, I don't think you're going to get any credit. God loves what? A cheerful giver. You know, the word cheerful actually means hilarious. It would be hilarious to me if the offering bag was passing by and some of you just started going, <laughs> that's hilarious. And you put your money in the, that's the Greek word. Isn't that hilarious? I just gave a hundred dollars. Hilarious. Your spouse might be thinking, I don't find that funny at all. <laughs> I think we should talk about this. Some of your friends may think it's hilarious that you give money to the church because that's what they think is going on. But what you're giving is to the kingdom of God, to the Lord's work. So on the first day of the week, you can see, for example, for those of you who are interested in doing more study on this, write down Acts 20, verse 7. Paul's in Troas, and he preaches a message into the wee hours of the evening on the first day of the week. In fact, he preaches so long that a young man falls out of the window. You guys remember that story? That was on the first day of the week, but he was picked up alive even though he was dead. A miracle happened. Each one of us is to put aside and save this indicates forethought, save it up, store it up for when you come to worship. Here's an example, a parallel example. I think most of you try to grab your Bible before you come to worship, amen? Why do you grab your Bible? Because you are preparing yourself to study the Word of God, and you want to hear from the Lord, so you bring your Bible with you. Well, maybe the offering should not be, oh, here it comes, <laughs> what do I... They take an offering. Oh, yeah, that's right. Every week. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe our giving should not be an afterthought. Maybe we should decide beforehand with our spouse or family in prayer, even teaching it to our children. Hey, you made 10 bucks mowing the lawn this week. Guess what? A dollar that belongs to the Lord. Not that 10% is the rule, but you guys know what I'm saying teaching that aspect of giving. The idea of storing up is from a Greek word where we get the word thesaurus. A thesaurus is a collection of words, antonyms and synonyms of words. And so you look at a thesaurus to try to find uh, a synonym or a word that would say the same thing. And it's a collection box of words. Well, here the idea is the collection is taken, it is saved up, if you will, to go to the ministry. In this case, it's for the poor. Here's what we got. Our time, talent, and possessions are our resources. How we use these resources is called stewardship. And it is required of a steward, and a steward is simply a manager. We'd say, if you, were, if you worked for somebody's business and you were managing that business, you're managing that business for them, 
You're responsible for the cash register, the employees, etc. That's what a steward is. You manage that which has been given to you. Peter Marshall said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Close quote. <laughs> John Stott said, we should travel light and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Close quote. And in our world, we all fight excess, don't we? How much is really enough? How much do we really need? On that day when we stand before our Lord, right? I am not saying you shouldn't enjoy your life. I'm not saying don't take vacations. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, in the end, how much do we think about this aspect of our Christian life? I think for many Christians, it's, Almost like an afterthought. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. It's the next book to your right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul develops this idea of the offering for the poor. This is 2 Corinthians 8, and we're in verse 1. Paul writes, I'm going to read from the NIV. I think it has a little bit more clarity here. Now, brothers, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of, their, out of the most severe trial, 2 Corinthians 8, 2, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, 2 Corinthians 8, 3, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. That was the reason for the collection. They did, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, earnestness and in, <laughs> easy for me to say, and in your love for us, See that you all excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of what? Of your love. By comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Now it's one thing to think about giving maybe a little bit more than we have in the past, or even considering that. It's another thing. Can you imagine if you decided to become poor so that somebody else could become rich? Well, that almost seems like such a distant idea. But do you know that that's what Jesus did? He became poor that we might become rich. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus, turn to the book of Acts, I'll show you one more in Acts 11, Remember, good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commandments. He named some of them. Acts 11. Oh, these I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Well, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have eternal life. And the man's face fell. <gasps> For he had many possessions. Now, people read that passage and say, is that what Jesus is requiring of every Christian? No, I hope not. 
because I haven't done it. But he knew that the God of the rich young ruler was mammon. So he attacked his God. Jesus ever done that in your life? You know you've been cozying up to a false god or an idol and Jesus exposes that or the word of God exposes that and you're like, oh, uncomfortable. And the rich young ruler walked away and Jesus let him go. And then he turned and said, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because when you have everything at your beck and call, like we do as Americans, we like to distance ourselves from these verses until we realize we're in the top 5% of worldly wealth compared to everybody else in the world. You're in the top 5% right now. You say, I don't feel like it. But you are. I know it's tough to live in some of the areas we do, right? It doesn't feel like we're in the top 5%. Every time we turn around, things go up. Now, one of them, Acts 11.28, named Agabus, stood up. He began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, probably here the Roman world. This took place, Acts 11.28, in the reign of Claudius. He was the emperor of Rome from 41 to 54 A.D. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. That's the wilderness right outside Jerusalem there. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul, Saul became Paul, to the elders. This is the idea of a free will offering. In the proportion, look at verse 29, that any of the disciples had the means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. This was the heart of the church. Giving is a matter of the heart. 1 Corinthians, let's turn back there. And it is a grace. In fact, I think that giving is probably one of the most picturesque ways to show forth the gospel, even to the unbeliever. Paul did not want to beg for money, so he said, I want you to have this done so that when I arrive, no collections need to be taken. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, and notice he said, I want you to do this, back in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 16, as each one prospers. This word in Greek has the idea of making money in business, being prosperous. So here's the idea. If you have had a good week at work, if you've had a good month, if you're a little ahead as you have prospered, so you should think about giving. So your giving doesn't necessarily have to be static since all New Testament giving is free will giving anyway. It's a matter of your heart. What you've purposed in your heart, that's what you should give. Then it may be that it's not static. It may change. There may be some weeks when you have very little to give and other weeks that you could give more. And it is as you have prospered. It's a matter of the heart. I'd like you to turn to an Old Testament example. It's all the way in the book of Exodus 35. Genesis, Exodus. Let's turn over there. Let me share an ancient story uh, because you know, Paul was concerned about how he was perceived and so he was very careful about his instruction here. But there's a story that was shared by Josephus 
And, he, and one writer says, Paul may have been, been aware of an event that made a, a collection of money in Jerusalem a touchy issue. Josephus reports that a Palestinian Jew in three cohorts induced one of their notable Roman converts, Fulvia, to send valuables for the temple in Jerusalem. Rather than conveying the goods to Jerusalem, they absconded with them. That means they stole them. Their scam was discovered, and it created such a clamor that the emperor Tiberius ordered all Jews to be banished from Rome. Can all God's people say there is nothing new under the sun? And we know that this has happened, sadly, uh, in the church as well. This is Exodus 35, and this is the building of the tabernacle. I want you to see an example of free will giving. Exodus 35, 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, Exodus 35, 5, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance, fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Skip down to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence, and everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches. That's badges, pins, ornaments, earrings, signet rings, bracelets, all articles of gold. So, so did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. You could see it belonged to them and now they gave it up. Look at verse 24. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. Every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen. And all the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. And the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Now we know where all this stuff came from, for the tabernacle. The spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them, to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Now, all the way um, to 36, verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, 36, 2, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. And they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work and the construction of the sanctuary. They still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. The point is, this was not a tithe. It was not to support the government or the nation. It was a free will offering. Anybody whose heart moved them, they did it. 
All the skillful men, uh, verse 4, who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. They said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. I don't know if there's ever been in the history of a, the Christian church an email that circulated to the church members that said something like this, don't give anymore, we have more than enough. Or as one pastor famously put it, Today I have a declaration at the offering time. We have more than enough money to do everything that God has put before us. There's only one problem. It's still in your pockets. <laughs> There's more than enough money here. It's just not in the collection. Anyway, back to 1 Corinthians 16. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to move quick. Now, just so you this is bedrock in your mind. This is not law. This is of your own free will. If anybody is ever strong-arming you into giving, you better double-check what's going on. The Word of God needs to be taught. It's placed before you, and then you get before the Lord, and you say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I think we grow in our giving. I think it's kind of in concert with how we mature in our walk. Now, Paul says, when I, when I arrive, 16.3, whomever you may approve, I shall send with them letters to carry your gift. The word gift, gift there is charis. It's the word for grace to Jerusalem. The gift would be an expression of grace. I just want to read from my notes. Thus, the giver was responding to God's grace and extending his grace to those who need it. We all need it. But it is a beautiful thought to consider that when you meet a need or give something out of the blessings you've received from the Lord, it's an act of grace. There was and is a lovely freedom in this process. One could consider before the Lord and based on how they had prospered in a given week to express gratitude and show forth the gospel in their giving. It was an act of love. It was an act of grace. And imagine when a group of Gentiles showed up in Jerusalem maybe uh, met with James, the brother of our Lord, who was over the Jerusalem church, and showed up, and one of the first things they did was say, here, we brought this for the poor saints in the Jerusalem church. How do you think the mother church in Jerusalem would receive that? When you know someone has come to give to you instead of to take, doesn't that make all the difference? What do you think the suspicious Jews who had racial uh, questions, a long history of racial divide with Gentiles, especially among the religious leadership, and saw a bag of coins then dropped on the desk, please use this for the poor? Does that put aside some suspicion? Does that lower down some walls of division? You know, there are people in the city of Corona, they're not going to step foot in a church because they've watched some of this stuff get exposed. They've seen some of the shows so-called on Christian television, and they say, if that's Christianity, you can have it. And I can't blame them. 
Some years ago, I was working on a friend. We were playing slow pitch softball together. I had become a Christian. I was a new Christian. He was not. And I had you know, gone to this church in Orange, my wife and I, and I, I was telling him about the Lord, and I was telling him, hey man, you gotta, you gotta come, they teach the Bible, it's such a loving place, you'll, you'll so appreciate it, and finally I got him to come, and the pastor of the church taught um, topically, and so you, you didn't really know from week to week what it was going to be, so my friend finally comes, and I get a, a bulletin, and the message was called, The Lord of the Wallet. And my friend was hesitating to come to church because he said, church is a racket, and all they want is your money. And I'm like, no, my church is different. They rarely bring this stuff up. Oh, no, they just teach the Bible and the gospel. And we walk into church, and today's message will be the Lord of the wallet. And he was there with his wallet like, no, you're not going to get it. <laughs> See, I told you. But could it be? That sometimes money and the discussion of money offends us. We almost want to tune out the message because it's become our God. Because maybe it's been elevated to a place that is not healthy. Paul says in verse 4, if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Paul said, I want the offering to be taken. I, I don't want to be perceived as begging for money when I come. And if I need to go with them, I will. I'll send letters if I need to. Paul did eventually end up going with them, even though it was very dangerous for him to go to Jerusalem. I want you to see the measures that were put in place. Representatives from the church. Paul would go only if necessary. There was safety and accountability in numbers. I don't know what any of you give to this congregation, to this work of the ministry. I don't see it. I cannot sign checks. I cannot open the safe. And that has been done for my protection and yours. This is, this is the way that we're trying to keep everybody accountable. Now, by God's grace, you do pay my salary, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> but you allow me to study during the week. You allow me not to be bivocational. You allow me to invest in the radio ministry and in our people and discipling at Bible studies and being here for the people during the week and for the staff. And that's very much appreciated. This is the work of the ministry we do together. I think when the gift was given to alleviate suffering in Jerusalem, it was further evidence, evidence that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, we are all one, Galatians 3.28. I'm just going to go to verse 9 for the sake of time, and we'll move quickly. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you, or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. I have just a quick comment here. Paul wasn't concerned about collections. He was concerned about people. See, ministry is about people. Do you see Paul's words here? I don't want to just stop by and pick up an offering and blow out of town. I love you guys. When Paul planted the church in Corinth, he spent a year and a half with these folks. He loved them. The letter, largely corrective, was also a message of love. And now he says, look, I'd like to spend the winter with you. And travel in the ancient world was very arduous and difficult. 
And Paul said, I love you. I want you. This is not just about you know, what I can get from somebody. It is about what I can give. It is relational. I shall stay with you. I will even spend the winter. I don't want to just see you in passing, verse 7, like we have no relationship. I hope to remain with you for some time. But then Paul always tags it, if the Lord wills, God willing, if the Lord permits. Resources flow from a relationship. People have said, people will give to vision. I, I agree, people will give to a vision, but I think people will give most of all because they have a relationship of trust with those who are in authority. Do you agree? I'm going to give my funds to someone that I believe is doing things the right way, doctrinally and in terms of accountability. I'm not just going to give my money willy-nilly. I want to give it to an organization or a church that I trust, and that flows from my relationship with God and hopefully knowing that church. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And finally, for a wide door of effective service, for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Father, as we think about this idea of the collection and doing everything we do in love, we can reflect on some of the major themes here that giving is to be regular, it's to be universal, it's to be as you've prospered us, it's to be out of our free will, it's a matter of the heart. It may be 10%, it may be more, it may be less. But this is not about law, and there's a beautiful freedom. It's, it's an expression of the gospel to know we're free. As you move on our hearts, as you did in Exodus 35, as someone's heart was stirred, they gave. And I don't think there's any better way to capture the essence of the Christian life. Lord, stir my heart. To love, stir my heart to give. Help me to realize how much you've given me in Jesus, how much I really do have. Help me, help me to count my blessings, not to be selfish or prideful, but to give as you have freely given to me.